When I was in Germany last month, in Berlin, uh, uh, we went to a museum called the Topography of Terror. And what it is, is um, it's a, a museum for the secret, the Nazi secret police, uh, the secret state police. And they call it that because they don't want to call it a museum. So all the, all the um, exhibitions of the Nazis in Berlin um, are very toned down. Not, not toned down in the sense that they're trying to hide, toned down in the sense they don't want to glorify. So anyway, at this um, exhibition, they had a, because it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, they had an, a, an extra um, add-on exhibition about the way the Nazis co-opted Martin Luther for their own purposes. And so, you, you know, you'd go around this part of the exhibition and you'd see photographs and quotes and things and you'd, you know, as a Christian, I'd look at it and, and see, um, you know, a parade of um, Lutheran clergy um, with crosses and then also next to them Nazi military holding Nazi flags and it really jars. And you think, to yourself, how could there be a Reich church and a Reich bishop? How could the um, middle class Christians in Germany go for this stuff? Um, and, it, and straight away it makes me think of what's going on in America, but I won't go there. Um, how did the Lutherans shape their value to the point where they could follow the Nazis like that? Even, you know, the clergy and and many in the church. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the famous clergy who, who started a counter-movement against the Nazis called the Confessing Church, he, he talked a lot about what was going on in Germany at that time, and he said this, we Lutherans have gathered like eagles around the carcass of cheap grace, and there we have drunk of the poison which has killed the life of following Christ. Everywhere, Luther's formula has been repeated, but its truth perverted into self-deception. So long as our church holds the correct doctrine of justification, there is no doubt, whatever, that she is, is a justified church. So they said, the result was that that nation became Christian and Lutheran, but at the cost of true discipleship. The price it was called upon to pay was all too cheap. Cheap grace had won the day. The price we are having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organised church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at too low a cost. Cheap grace. Bonhoeffer's point was that these middle-class Lutheran Christians and their pastors had totally lost, really, what grace really means. They'd lost the power of it, the depth of it, the, 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 the um, gravitas of it. For a bit over 400 years, Lutherans in Germany had taught the doctrine of justification by grace, but they had watered it down, they'd cheapened it to the point where they could follow the Nazis. Grace is a word that is deep and powerful. Hopefully you said good things to each other. Hopefully you just didn't sort of talk about what you had for breakfast or that you need another coffee. It doesn't mean, grace doesn't mean that God is such a nice guy that he just lets us all off and, you know, scot-free and that nothing really matters. 
like he's giving us all a permanent, you can get into heaven for free card and don't worry, you just flash this if you get into trouble. And if God is not some kind of weakling judge, he's not the grace judge that just sort of goes, oh well, whatever, when, when he's judging us. If we want to really understand God's grace, we need to look beyond it simply being a gentle breeze. Grace is not just a gentle breeze that makes a bad situation better. In fact, throughout your life, if you stay a Christian your whole life, you will experience grace in all kinds of ways, even in severe ways, even in painful ways. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the way grace can be severe, the way grace can be painful, the way it can shock you, it can make you uncomfortable, it can teach you a lesson. And Jonah, the upside-down prophet, who we you know, mentioned last week, that everyone in this story is back to front, so he's the dodgy prophet that does everything the opposite, the way, to the, way, the way we expect. He's not an example of righteousness. The sailors that we read about last chapter, chapter one, who we expect to be you know, um, sinners, actually end up, at the end of the chapter, worshipping God and bowing down to him and sacrificing to him. But Jonah took the option of being thrown into the water, not as some kind of martyr performing an act of selfless love, but as a pathetic um, sinner on the run, blocking out God. I don't want to have to deal with God, says Jonah. I would prefer, rather than repent, I'd prefer just to get thrown into the water and sink to the bottom. But Jonah's plan did not work. He didn't drown in the water, as he hoped. Instead, God sent a fish to save him. Verse 17, one of the weird, fun, most fun verses in the whole Bible. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So Jonah didn't get away with his rebellion at all. It was a complete failure. And God acted in grace. This was the Lord Yahweh who always acts graciously and beneficially. But also, this was the Lord Elohim. Both names are used here. And when the name Elohim is used, we are to think of the God who disciplines. God is doing both, grace and discipline. In fact, the grace is discipline. And, and you know, this is, a, this is a huge fish, not a whale. If anyone says, you know, Jonah and the whale, you can correct them and say, no, that's not biblical. It's a huge fish or a sea monster, whatever, if you want to be one of those people. Um, this is the Lord's deliverance. This is another exodus. This is another Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. This is another Daniel in the lion's den. And the big fish swallows Jonah and into his stomach. And we are to picture him. The, the, the imagery is so vivid and we're supposed to go with the vivid imagery here. Picture him in the belly of the sea monster. And we can already sense that God is not letting Jonah get off scot-free. It's not like, you know, Superman's flying in and just picks him up and puts him onto dry land. No, he's going to have to go through some stuff. 
we are to imagine ourselves being swallowed in through the rubbery lips and the harsh teeth down the, you know, into the stomach with all the stomach juices and the seaweed going around and the bits of tomato skin and carrots and porridge, which seems to always be in everyone's stomach, swirling around. And don't forget in three days, as you know, you probably know the story, even if you have not read it before, it's such a famous story, that in three days it gets vomited up. So we've got stomach juices and vomit, right? So this is all part of... Uh, this, is the, this is actually, we think, scholars think this was written by Roald Dahl, this, this book. Not really. So then what happens is, it's like a it's like George's Marvelous Medicine or one of those, you know, things of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, he's, he's in the stomach swirling around with the seaweed. Then what does Jonah do? do he, he, he actually goes into it. He, he's like, I'm going to worship God now. I'm going to make up a psalm. Because that's what you do when you're inside the belly of a fish. So verses 1 to 9... We see Jonah singing a psalm. It's a song of thanksgiving. It's a bit like Psalm 18 or Psalm 30. It tells the story of Jonah's deliverance. And Jonah is truly grateful, like a person who's been healed from sickness or rescued from their enemies. And Jonah becomes like a congregation of one in the belly. The belly is his church. And he is going to talk a bit about God a little bit, and he's going to talk to God a bit, just like we do in church. First of all, he summarizes his trouble and his deliverance in verse 2 and 7. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. He sort of feels a bit ashamed, I think. God called out to Jonah in, jo- in chapter 1 jo- Jonah, go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? I'm not listening. But in this case, Jonah calls out to God and God straight away answers. God's been waiting for Jonah to call out to him. Here, Jonah has to eat humble fish pie. In his distress, he has to cry out to God and God immediately answers. God is heaping burning coals on Jonah. You might want to not be obedient, Jonah but I'm going to be faithful anyway to you. The captain had been asking Jonah to call out to God and and he wouldn't do it. It would require a near drowning for him to do it. He was in the realm of the dead, to use his words. He was in the darkness. He was in the abode of the dead. But as the writer of the Proverbs and the writer of the Psalms, Job will tell you, even God can hear you cry out from Sheol, from the dead. God's listening still there. He will not abandon his own who reside there. The proverb says, death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more do human hearts? Jonah goes on and he describes his distress again in verse 3 to 6, but in a bit more detail. He describes what it's like to get thrown in overboard. You hurled me into the depths. And Jonah is seeing this as kind of God's punishment. God has done this. It's not the sailors. The sailors physically did it, but really it's God doing it. The current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He's in serious trouble. It's like when you get caught in a rip, you know, when you're getting pulled out and you're, just, you're swimming as hard as you can and you just can't 
you can't do anything, and then you see another big wave coming, and you're scared because it's a dumper, and then you can see that there's sharp rocks down there. I mean, most Australians have experienced this at one point because we are beach people, you know, um, and it's a scary thing, and he actually got the full combination of the lot, the, 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 the undertow, the waves crashing and going deep down. He's in trouble. God is saying to Jonah, stop ignoring me. Stop it. Wake up. I'm going to save you, but I want you to have to cry out to me. I want you to have to feel like you need me. I want you to be a bit scared. And Jonah actually is realising this is what's happening and he feels like he's been banished from God's sight. Verse 4. And he's wondering whether he's become persona non grata with God. Um, but he says if he does escape, he will go to the temple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship God, you God. If I do get, you know, if I get out of this fish, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good, you know, Jew, you know. He's like the flimsy Christian who really doesn't pay any attention to God and, and for most of their life and then at one point gets really, really, really sick and then gets really worried about their life and comes running back to God. Yeah, um, if, you, if you make me better, I'll be a good Christian. We've all been that person, haven't we? I mock, but then I mock it myself. Jonah was facing death and he really didn't like it. But he's not going to die this time. The Lord has saved him from the pit. Then in verse 7, he does another summary of his distress. And then in verse 8, strangely, Jonah offers a practical tip to the congregation. But he's the, it's, he's the only one in the congregation. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. It's almost like um, he's just trying to think up uh, you know, religious stuff to say. Um, you know how sometimes you, you hear in churches, um, you know, um, we, the worship leader might just plan along and then not know what to say. So they just sort of say, Lord, we just want to say, Lord, yeah, that you're just great and we love you so much. No, he's just holy talk to make us feel religious. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. What has that got to do with anything? Perhaps he's, this is for the audience to whom for whom Jonah is written. But it seems like Jonah's starting to sound like he's trying to be religious. And Jonah finishes with sounds of praise, verse 9 and 10. After all that Jonah has pondered on, he's really thankful to God. Now there's a tension in this psalm that Jonah reads that sometimes you don't pick up on because you just read it because you're going through the story and you're waiting to get to the next bit. But notice this. There's a tension which is between um, Jonah and what he's not doing and what he's trying to do. The tension is in him. He thanks God from inside the fish because he's been rescued. He's truly grateful that he's not dead. He doesn't need to wait to reach dry land to feel this thanks. He hasn't left his beliefs about idolatry behind despite his encounter with the pagan sailors, nor has he changed his mind about Nineveh. He's grateful without repenting, though. Like, he hasn't actually said sorry to God. I'm sorry for for running from you. I've realised that, you know, what a bad person I am and how how I've ignored you and how I've been disobedient. 
He's just thankful that God has saved him. He actually still does not really want Nineveh to repent. So he's still actually defiant. While he's being all religious in his little worship service in the belly. So we shouldn't see this moment as the dodgy prophet becoming enlightened and remorseful. He will go to Nineveh because Yahweh has said he has to. He's like, God's gone, you have to go. So he'll go. But he's still going to protest later. But for now, he will express his thanks to God uh, for this unexpected intervention. Jonah, with all of his flaws, prays what he can pray. He says, thanks for stopping me from drowning. And he prays his prayer with formal Jewish cliches that he's heard in the temple lots of times. <coughs> Using lines from the Psalms that he's memorised, he just kind of regurgitates them, pun the pun. And God accepts that prayer, even though it's pretty pathetic, really, after all of this that God has done for him. At the very least, I guess Jonah has looked to God and God has delivered him. And so what here do we learn about God's grace? Well, first of all, we learn that God gives dramatic wake-up calls. So you may have experienced that in your life. You may have been going for a period where you've been ignoring God or where you've been getting into deep sin and convincing yourself that you're okay and God doesn't mind. And then there has been some kind of intervention and it's been like you've been shaken by God. Wake up. What are you doing? We're, if we're going to grow from these experiences, we need to know that this is what God is doing. The worst thing that we can do when God does this is to think to ourselves, oh, God is so unfair. He just like treats me terribly. That's what Jonah could have done, I guess. We need to respond when God intervenes with his dramatic wake-up calls. Also, in terms of God's severe grace, we see something really important, which is that God accepts our feeble prayer and worship, even when we're still in a mess. So when you rock up on Sunday, or in your privately at home, and you're doing your quiet time, and you, you know what it's like. You're, right now you're probably sitting here and you're probably thinking about something else. You're probably thinking, why, why is Peter wearing that shirt or something? Or you might be thinking, what am I going to have for lunch today? Or you might be thinking about the homework that you got due or, or you know, that, um, some other thing. And you sing the songs and you're not really meaning it. And you pray your prayers but you don't really know what's going on. The good thing is luckily God accepts that anyway. Because if he didn't, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? That's God's grace. He accepts our feeble prayer and worship, even when we're still in a mess. And also, God still answers our prayers, even when we've got issues with him. This is how profound he is. He doesn't need the relationship to be perfect for him to be uh, our father and ministering to us. Well, both God and the fish have had enough of Jonah and his tensions and his issues 
And so we have this Hebrew word, which means vomit. It's an onomatic onomatopoeic word, you know, the sound of vomit. The fish vomits Jonah out. And here at the finish of the story, we have what Jesus calls the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah went down into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and came out, so did Jesus go down into the tomb for three days and three nights, into the death, into Sheol, and then come out three days later into resurrection life. So we're to be inspired by this sign that shows us that a place that should have been a place of death has become a place of deliverance and life. No one expects someone to survive inside a fish, but God is present in the midst of death. Listen to um, this anticipation of Jonah in Psalm 139. Where can I go from you, your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark for you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Similarly, Paul, the apostle, says with great confidence, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We did not expect that a place of death would become a place of salvation. But that's how God's severe grace works. We think Jonah is a goner. He's walked the plank and God sends a fish. Salvation comes from the Lord, says Jonah in the belly of the fish. He is sunk to the bottom of the sea but not drowned. So when Jesus describes his own ministry in terms of the sign of Jonah, he's saying God is at work to save even before those running from him are aware of him. The disciples were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he had told them that he would. When the women went to the empty tomb and then reported it to the, to the blokes, the blokes didn't believe them. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and provides salvation to the world, he's doing all of this while the world was still enemies with God. For Jonah, a place of death, the belly, becomes a place of deliverance. And so in our world, in a world that fears death, you know, middle-aged people, we kind of try and do everything to, to avoid death. Um, young people do everything they can to die. You know, risk-taking. Um, we don't know what to do with it. Jonah's new life is a sign of proclaiming and living out the gospel. The sign of Jonah has become identified with the hope of, of life which is in Christ now, the promise of the resurrection to come. The fear of death and the denial of death causes us humans to act in a weird and sometimes stupid ways. 
But Jonah is a captive of the fish, but the fish is his good news. In the belly, Jonah is protected from the waves and drowning. He's rescued, saved, he's protected. But on the other hand, he is a captive. And he witnesses to the fact that he is grateful to be in captivity rather than drowning and becoming fish food. And we often, when we read this story, we think of his discomfort, but he doesn't even mention that. For Jonah, his experience of being captive in the belly of the fish is an experience of grace. And I want to end by just saying that as Christians... We are all in a state of permanent, severe grace and captivity. We are captive to the ministry of the gospel and the ongoing life of being a Christian. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Philippi. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You, me, we are all in the belly of the fish now. We are in the belly of the expectation of Jesus' return. And we will spend the rest of our days here on earth in worship, with all our limitations, in thanksgiving and praise and for our salvation. And as we sing and praise God, we should expect something more and better that's going to come. Let's pray. Thank you, uh, God, that you are a God of salvation and grace and that you do intervene in our lives, sometimes in remarkable and strange ways. We pray that if some of us here now Um, need saving, need rescuing from the depths that you intervene uh, and that you shake us up. We pray that when that happens that we will realise it's you and respond. Amen.